Rights activists and carers are filling the gap as the war creates huge challenges in accessing disability support. Medical supplies, food, and financial aid have become increasingly more difficult. On this week's AJ Long Raids, what the war means for Ukrainians with disabilities. This story was written by Amanda Zong and read by me, Laura Lockwood. Four-year-old Tiona sits in a room filled with purple beanbags and other sensory toys, patting an inflated balloon vigorously with both her hands. She seems cheerful and vivacious, occasionally crying out in joy. Speaking to her in a kindly, measured tone is a play therapist, Sophia. Her job is to help Tiona improve her social skills. Watching the two interact, it's hard to imagine that the last few months have been intensely traumatic for Tiona in ways that she cannot articulate. For now, she is safe at the Gerlo Children's Rehabilitation Center, an NGO offering rehabilitation services and treatment for young people with disabilities in the western Ukrainian city of Lviv. The journey was not easy, though. She and her mother, Victoria Pliesh, 33, fled by train, waiting fearfully at dangerous checkpoints before arriving on July 9th, just over four months after Russian forces captured their hometown of Holopristin in the southern region of Kherson. Tiona has nonverbal autism, and before the Russians overran Holopristin, she had been attending a kindergarten that provided play and speech therapy. For months, her mother clung to the hope that Ukrainian forces would liberate the area. Tiona had been confined to their home for several months, unable to go to school or see any of her classmates, who had all gone to Poland or Romania with their families. She grew agitated, covering her ears and screaming constantly. All the facilities for children with developmental disabilities shut down because they refused to cooperate with the Russian occupiers, which we think is the honorable thing to do, Pliash says. A mild-mannered woman with a determined gaze, she sits ramrod straight in her chair as she speaks, occasionally glancing at Tiona as she plays with Sophia. The family lived in fear. Rockets were flying everywhere, and there were no air raid sirens to warn us, she recalls. The only times she left the house were to dash out to the market to buy food. The last straw came when she heard about the Russian army kidnapping civilians or fighters with Ukrainian loyalties. Tiona wailed throughout the arduous two-day journey from Holopristin into Lviv. Now, Pliash, her husband, and Tiona live with her sister in Lviv. Pliash is relieved that Tiona can resume the therapy she needs and not be isolated any longer. Despite her sunny disposition and the friends she's made at Gerlo, Tiona is still on edge following her ordeal. After months at home with Pliash in Holopristin, she also has separation anxiety, screaming if her mother is out of sight for more than a few minutes. But it's not just Tiona who has needed extra care after all the stress she has endured. Yaroslava Nikashin, 35, an easygoing and warm social worker at Gerlo, says that her work in recent months has focused on supporting parents and ramping up psychological help and counseling for caregivers. Some of the parents, like her, Pliash, seem calm, but on the inside, they're also really scared and sad, she says. Despite worries that financing for NGOs like Gerlo will dwindle as the war drags on and most financial aid is diverted to the armed services, Nikashin has made up her mind to continue her work. We have to try to maintain both the quality and quantity of the services we offer and give as much as we can, she says. As the Russian invasion grinds into its seventh month, Ukrainians with intellectual and physical disabilities, as well as their carers, continue to encounter huge challenges in accessing the support they need. According to two Brussels-based NGOs, the European Disability Forum and Inclusion Europe, 
some 2.7 million people with disabilities are registered in Ukraine. Of these, an estimated 261,000 have intellectual disabilities. Both organizations have documented a drastic deterioration in the quality of life for Ukrainians with disabilities. Some are unable to access medication or food, while those with developmental disabilities have seizures or become aggressive while frightened by shelling. In addition, wheelchair users or those with mobility issues are not able to access bomb shelters, so people with physical disabilities have no choice but to remain at home, leaving them at a disproportionate risk of death. Thousands more are believed to be trapped in care homes or poorly maintained institutions, cut off from their communities and languishing in neglect. Since the end of June, Jerilo has been working with UNICEF and the Ukrainian government on an emergency intervention, dispatching mobile teams of medical experts to seven regions of western Ukraine, focusing on remote areas where children with physical impediments and developmental difficulties might struggle to receive the assistance they need. In total, Jerilo has supported more than 750 families through this scheme and their Lviv facility. Zoroslava Lielchak, the director of Jerilo, says that in the early days of the war, the center met people at the train station in Lviv who had carried their children for the entire journey from the east to western Ukraine, as they were not able to bring wheelchairs from home. There's also a big problem with leaving itself, she adds. The Russians often do not release people from the occupied territory. She cites the example of a rehabilitation specialist from Kherson who is now working at Jerilo. Along with his two nephews who have cerebral palsy, he had to escape through Russian-controlled Crimea, as they were not permitted to leave via any other route. These stories are commonplace, Lielchak says, and such stressful journeys can provoke complications in physical and psychological conditions already experienced by children with disabilities. Some 735 kilometers away, in Galway, Ireland, 40-year-old Ukrainian disability rights activist Yulia Sachuk is all too familiar with the frustrations faced by people with disabilities who are trying to evacuate to safety, whether to Western Ukraine or abroad. As the chair and co-founder of Fight for Right, a female-led Ukrainian NGO for disability rights, Sachuk and her team of nearly 30 have been overworked arranging the delivery of essential medications, financial support, and legal advice for more than 4,100 individuals in the disabled community since the end of February. Sachik was studying for a master's in disability law in Galway when she returned home in early 2022 as tensions were rising in eastern Ukraine. She fled the country in the late hours of February 24th, following the invasion, with her 17-year-old son and sister after hearing about a bombing near a medical facility for people with disabilities. Their train from Kyiv kept stopping amid explosions, and she frantically texted other activists in neighboring countries for help. One of her contacts helped the family get to Romania, and eventually to Ireland. Her husband has remained in Ukraine and is volunteering with the Territorial Defense Forces. Sachik says her work has been nonstop, grueling, and expensive. Arranging a medical evacuation for a person with disabilities, especially from the worst affected cities, can cost the equivalent of $5,100 to $10,300, in part due to the equipment needed. The group started a GoFundMe online crowdfunding campaign to help with evacuations and support those who cannot leave with food and medicine. As of late September, it had raised just over $460,000 of its $675,000 goal. According to Sachik, requests for help from people with disabilities continue to stream in. Aside from receiving initial guidance from two U.S.-based organizations, the Partnership for Inclusive Disaster Strategies and the World Institute on Disability, on how to set up Fight for Rights response strategy, 
Satrick says they were let down by other international disability charities. In the first months of the war, all these organizations were not helpful at all when it comes to direct support. Nobody worked with us, Satrick says. If we were talking about getting a person here and now to help a disabled person to their car or to buy some food or medicine, all of these organizations have failed. Ukrainian disability organizations were left on their own to save people, she says. With sadness, she recalls the first few months of the war when she received goodbye calls and messages from people with disabilities in occupied regions. They were stuck in their houses and they didn't have the possibility of evacuation, she says. Sachik knows intimately what it means to live with a disability. Born in the western Ukrainian city of Lutsk with severe congenital visual impairment, she was in and out of hospital throughout her childhood as she underwent multiple eye surgeries. Her sight is still poor today, but she says she manages to get by with the aid of magnifying glasses and enlarged letters on computer screens. When you have lived with this for all your life, you get used to it and stop thinking of it as a problem, she says. She credits her parents for fighting for her to attend a state-run school instead of one of the boarding schools for children with disabilities that are infamous for rampant abuse and mistreatment. At school, she was bullied by classmates. She remembers hearing stories about children with disabilities who were confined to their homes as some parents were ashamed of them. It was just not talked about so much in the past, she says. Sachik is proud of how Fight for Right has brought people with disabilities safety and comfort. She recalls how, in June, her team helped organize the delivery of a prosthetic breast from Germany to a woman in the northeastern city of Kharkiv in Ukraine. The woman had had a mastectomy following a breast cancer diagnosis and was also suffering from mobility problems. She was just so, so happy. She couldn't believe it was possible, Sachik remembers. One formidable task for NGOs working with people with developmental disabilities is the pressure to provide stability amidst the turmoil of war. Routine is especially important for children with autism. Disarray can jeopardize any progress that comes with therapy. Anna Parakady, founder of the START Center in Lviv, an NGO that supports children with developmental disabilities, says 35 displaced families from regions in eastern Ukraine that were shelled intensely by the Russians, such as Kherson, Donetsk, and Mykolaiv, have come to her for help since the start of the war. They have children with a range of physical, developmental, and learning disabilities. Some 90% of them have autism. These children need stability. They need permanent therapy to help them develop crucial skills, says Parakady, who has a 12-year-old son with autism. She stresses that children's development deteriorates quickly when pedagogical therapy is put on pause. Two-year-old Alyssa has nonverbal autism, a diagnosis that she only formally received upon arriving in Lviv from her home in Berdyansk in southeastern Ukraine. Her mother, 37-year-old Olha Tremayina, cries as she describes how Alyssa's behavior changed when the Russian occupation began. She stopped making eye contact and shut down completely, Tremayina recalls. As doctors fled the city, there was no proper medical care for children, and Alyssa has no access to speech therapy. When the family began to feel the impact of food shortages, they decided to flee. Upon arriving in Lviv, Chermayina and her husband Shota took Alyssa to a children's hospital, where a doctor confirmed she had autism. He said we would have to start her treatment right from the beginning, Chermayina says. We're taking a risk in staying here, but we don't know if she'll get the care she needs if we go abroad, and there's no guarantee that she can get used to it there. Today, Alyssa goes to the START Center five times a week.
Many children with disabilities were deprived of educational opportunities once the war started, as they could not partake in the online learning offered in mainstream schools. Parakady is also frustrated by the lack of governmental support, with the majority of rehabilitative services provided by NGOs like hers. She says the old Soviet education system, where the learning needs of people with disabilities were largely ignored, has meant that those who need support still feel stigmatized. Though she is optimistic that attitudes are changing, she worries that recognition of these needs won't come quite fast enough for those most affected by the war. Even for children with intellectual disabilities who may not have outwardly shown signs of trauma, a structured environment is just as important for their development. In Gerlo's spacious garden, with its trampoline and playground, Olena Filipova watches her daughter, nine-year-old Milena, play with other children. At the beginning of April, Filipova traveled with Milena, who has Down syndrome, westward from their home city of Bolitsk in Donetsk. Unable to get on a bus to Poland, she decided to stay in Lviv and enroll Milena at Gerolo for play therapy five days a week. For the time being, the pair lives in an overcrowded dormitory for internally displaced people where the conditions are dismal. But Filipova, 49, a secondary school teacher, hopes to secure a teaching job in the autumn. Milena, who has limited speech and communicates predominantly with gestures, is curious and observant, having picked up new words in Ukrainian simply by listening to other people. Since she grew up speaking Russian, the linguistic switch is particularly remarkable. But she's very mischievous, Filipova laughs. Once she knows a new word, she'll say it once, but refuse to repeat it. It's like she's making fun of me. For Milena, it was only after the war started that she began receiving specialist care. In Belitsk, Milena attended a regular kindergarten, where Filipova says the teachers made sure to be very inclusive and had similar play therapy, but for only two hours a week, which her mother felt wasn't sufficient. My daughter was born at a time when rehabilitation centers for children with learning disabilities were just starting to open, she says. As the field opens up and improves, she hopes that with this change of circumstances, Milena will start talking to me. At the Amos Center, a home for adults with intellectual disabilities on the grounds of the Ukrainian Catholic University in Lviv, residents offer fellow members of the disabled community a glimmer of hope by showing how stability and opportunities can facilitate social integration. Amos provides individualized care. Its four assistants live on-site and support its five permanent residents, aged between 25 and 45, with all aspects of their lives, from vocational training to employment to daily tasks such as shopping for groceries. At Amas's request, the residents interviewed are referred to by their first names only. The atmosphere in the home is relaxed and inviting, the residents chatting and laughing with each other. Sitting at the dining table in a cozy room lit by the afternoon sun, 32-year-old Ivanka speaks enthusiastically about her experiences with the 500-odd displaced people with disabilities who have, over six months, sought refuge at Amas and its surrounding dormitories for a few days at a time. Amas supported their subsequent evacuation to other countries in Europe. Ivanka, who has a developmental disability, attended a boarding school for years, only coming to live in Amas in September 2017. It was good when the refugees came because I was able to volunteer as a nanny for some of their children, she says. In particular, she misses a pair of twin boys who were five months old and had mobility issues. Prior to the war, she had been regularly attending a workshop where she learned to craft origami and artwork for sale. I stopped going because it was not safe. There was no bomb shelter near the place where the workshop was held, but I hope to go back soon, she says with a smile. Two of her other housemates found their lives severely disrupted when the war began. 
One 33-year-old Volodymyr, who has Down syndrome, lost his job as a cleaner in a tech company several months ago. Having immensely enjoyed it, it was he who first suggested that other residents of the house would benefit from working. We are hoping to find him something else in the meantime, says Tetiana Chol, one of the assistants at Amos. But it is still important to help out, Volodymyr interjects. With not much on his plate at the moment, he spends his days cooking and cleaning for his roommates, and often volunteers to do chores on behalf of the staff. In his free time, he watches TV programs from the 1990s and dreams of visiting Turkey, where one of his favorite soap operas is set. Another resident, 25-year-old Danilo, who also has Down syndrome, was taken by his family to Poland at the start of the war. They felt it would be safer there. It was fun, and I enjoyed going to school in Poland, but the language barrier was difficult for me, he confesses. He ended up missing his friends in Lviv so much that his family agreed that he should return. And now he is back at Amos. Danilo thumbs through a photo album to show Al Jazeera photos of his time in Poland. Suddenly, he recalls his mother, who died a few years ago, and whom he calls his best friend. Her lifelong dream was for me to live in a place like this, where I could be independent and loved. I miss her very much, he says, choking up with tears. As Ivanka pats him on the shoulder, Chol holds out her hand to comfort him, and he kisses it. Because of you, I am happy now, he tells them. Thank you for listening to this week's AJ Long Reads. What the War Means for Ukrainians with Disabilities was written by Amanda Zong and read by me, Laura Lockwood.